Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to another brand new episode of A Stab in the Dark, the alibi podcast that investigates the worlds of crime fiction and TV crime drama that peers through the bushes, witnesses a murder, then teams up with a few friends down the pub to work out who the killer is and celebrates solving the crime with a pint or two and several bags of pork scratchings. In this episode, we'll be welcoming the host of Pointless, the fabulous Richard Osman into our incident room, who, among other things, and we'll have plenty to talk about, will be telling us about his new career as a crime writer. I'll be asking him lots of questions, and I'm fairly confident that his answers won't include Vanuatu or the Central African Republic. Little gag there for the pointless devotees. My name's Mark Billingham, and welcome to A Stab in the Dark. Richard, welcome to Stab in the Dark. Hello, Mark. How lovely to be here. It's very nice to have you. Now... Not only are you the co-host of Pointless, the host of Richard Osman's House of Games, yep. but you're now a crime writer too. Mm. It's actually a little sickening, to be yes. honest. Is there anything you can't do? Well, listen, uh, Mark, <laughs> speaking to the uh, stand-up comedian, actor and crime novelist Mark Billion, Yeah, OK, fair uh, I said, listen, sometimes you, know, you get to a certain age and you think, it's not like I do a lot, it's just like I've, I've been around for a really long time. And so I was a TV producer for quite a long time. Right. Then I was a TV presenter for quite a long time. And now hopefully I shall be a novelist for quite a long time. So I think I've just been around for ages. <laughs> you know, if you interview me again when I'm 70, perhaps I'll probably be a stuntman or something. Oh, that, OK. A specialist. Specialist stuntman. A specialist stuntman for, stunt for senior citizens. For episodes of Last Tango in Halifax. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> any, any time Derek Jacoby falls off a roof. Yeah. Get Osman. That'll be me. Exactly. But, um, but to be serious, is there anything you're really bad at? Uh, yeah, loads of things, really. I think all I am good at really is listen I love popular culture um that's what I grew up you know watch I love television and books and stuff like that and I love um things that are enormously mainstream and popular I like good mainstream that's what I like those are the tv shows hopefully I created those are the tv shows I made uh and in terms of books those are the books that I've always read and you know I find that my skill set narrow though it is uh tends to fit into those different worlds telly and fiction are not very different, you know, especially the telly I've done, which is format telly. You know, you're simply telling a story. You're trying to sort of be a bit witty and telling a story. And hopefully that's what I've done in the TV I've done. And hopefully that's what I've done in the book. Well, before we talk in, in detail about your debut mm -hmm. novel, why, why crime fiction? How did that happen? I mean, you've written books before, the books that have been tied into the TV shows yeah. and stuff. This is a whole different kettle of fish. So wh when did the interest in crime fiction begin? Well, I've always had an interest in crime fiction. Well, I'd say always. I mean, I think in my teenage years I didn't read at all. If you talk to my mum, she'll tell you that. Even my uh, whatever books I had to read for O-Level, 
I think I had to do First Stood the Wind for France by H.E. Bates, uh, and I never read it. Did you not even read the sort of Cole's Notes? I don't or think whatever I, it is. I, I don't <laughs> think I ever did that. We didn't even we didn't have the internet back then, of course, did yeah. we? So you know, it was uh, I don't know where you would have got hold of such a thing. Um, and then when I started reading. I, it was crime fiction, and it remained crime fiction forever. Because my mum, the, the books in our house were always Agatha Christie and uh, Guy O'Marsh. Am I saying that right? Nio. Nio Marsh. I've never known how to, how to say it. Thank you. I'm bluffing. Um, Dorothy, <laughs> Dorothy L. Sayers and all that stuff. So that stuff had always been there, and that, that was the sort of stuff that uh, I, I immediately went to. And then, of course, contemporary crime fiction, you know, there's so much amazing stuff out there that um, I sort of didn't really feel the need to, to, to read much else for a while. Well, you've, I mean, you've visited the, obviously that stuff you read that, that was in the house that you grew up in, mm. you know, that's certainly influenced uh, the book, which, we'll, we, as I say, we'll come to in detail. But, I mean, you've also, you've visited the Crime Writing Festival in Harrogate yeah. uh, a few times. We've shared a stage there a few times. We have did, indeed. Did the atmosphere of that festival sort of help you tune in to the kind of, you know, the genre, get you sort of thinking, plotting, seeing, seeing what was going on, getting the buzz of it? Yeah, it's interesting that. I mean, certainly what it, what, what it made me feel was what a lovely community of people. As everyone was incredibly encouraging, everyone was incredibly supportive, everyone looked after each other. Um, but all crime festivals tend to be in a big building somewhere with lots and lots of people slightly cut off from the outside world. And you just think, well, this is the plot of every crime novel there's ever been. Uh, and every time I'm there, I just there must be a race between everybody thinking, I'm going to set my new novel here. This is, I'm going to have a, a murder uh, you know, if we uh, if we're at Butte Noir, I'm going to do a murder on the Isle of Butte, where one crime writer murders another crime writer, and the other crime writers have to solve it. And no, no one's quite done that. Have they actually done that? If, if you're listening, yeah. that Mr. Osman is now. No, does but presumably, have that copyright. <laughs> presumably they haven't done it because they're thinking everyone else must be thinking yeah. this. Because yeah, there yeah. must be there must be someone in the bar occasionally who everyone's just thinking, oh, knock it off, mate. Uh, and then you think, you know, that's a lot of suspects. I was I was once at a festival in America with uh, and having breakfast with a bunch of other crime writers. And there's a, a thriller writer called Simon Koenig. I'm sure oh, yeah. Know. And he was telling us about this dream he'd had. He was really shaken and kind of pale at breakfast. And he's going, I had this awful dream and these people were coming to kill me. And I had seconds to get out of the house. And we, and we all kind of looked at him and we went... That's the start of a book, Simon. And he, you could see the panic in his eyes. And he just went, my dream. It was my dream. And for the rest of the weekend, any time you saw him, he was going, my dream, remember, my dream. Yeah. And that book, actually, he did write no, a book and became a big town. Richard and Judy hit. No, really? But I remember when he told us about the dream at breakfast. Oh, was, and the have, panic. You have, you have got to copyright your dreams, haven't you? Well, I mean, if, if they're that good. I once, they... dreamt, I once dreamt, talking of uh, crime television, I once dreamt the perfect episode of The Bill. I mean, the perfect episode of the book. You know when you dream something uh, and you think, oh, I've got it. But I usually have a pad by the side of my bed. I think a lot of writers do. So I dream the perfect episode of the bill and I sort of wake up in the middle of the night right after the dream and I can remember it, the whole thing. So I'm thinking, hello. <laughs> so literally I'm scribbling it down. This is the middle of the night. Scribble the whole thing down, you know, all the twists. All the, it's got a big twist at the end and blah, blah, blah. But I get it all down and I think, great, I've done it. Um, then I wake up the next morning I think, Jesus, I dreamt the perfect episode of The Bill last night. This is amazing. So I look at the pad by my bed and it says, a man throws a brick through a window, but it is a different man. <laughs> oh. And that was it. <laughs> different underlined twice. 
At least but, it made some kind of sense. It felt I t- to me like I'd been writing yeah. this for about an hour when I was in the middle of the night and just thinking, hold on a I minute, mean, this has got it all. <laughs> I tried that pad by the side of the bed thing. Because often it's not even a dream. It's just as you're drifting off to mm. sleep, you know, some, and so you, but you wake up in the morning and it says, you know, penguin, sausage. It says something yeah, d- yeah. completely unrelated to what you dreamt. I mean, it's fascinating. You know, it is interesting because you know, people talk about writer's block and what have you, but there is that fascinating. T- you can have a whole day of writing and really grinding it out. And you'll just be drifting off to sleep. And you'll just think of your character doing something that they wouldn't normally do or meeting something they wouldn't normally meet. And your brain suddenly goes, hold on, that's another door opened. And suddenly you've got a whole day's work in kind of an hour and you've just got to write it all down. Yeah, that's when you have to actually get out of bed oh. and go back to the computer and make sure you get something down that's, that at least is going to kick you off next morning. Yeah, you know? these days I've got it on the phone and just my phone is full of these kind of Right. Mad little scenes that you just that, that seem to make sense at the time, but sometimes it's, uh, it's it's invaluable. So this is something you'd been you'd been toying with for a while, been thinking about it for a while. Obviously busy with other stuff, so mm. maybe it was easy to go. Well, one day I'll do it. Or I'll yeah, put it yeah, yeah. What was the tipping point? What was the point well, where you went? I'm going to do this bloody thing. Listen, it's hard to write a book, right? I mean, I don't know if that's an exclusive, but uh, <laughs> it's re- I'll, I'll have to agree with you. It's obviously. really really difficult. And I spoke to you about three or four years ago. I said, oh, I'm thinking of writing a book, and you sent me in the direction of a very very good publisher. And I chatted to him. And, you know, he spoke to me for a while, and I came out of the meeting with him just thinking, I don't have the time to do this properly at the moment. If I write a book, I want it to be as good as the books that I read. You know, that's the key for me. I want it to be able to stand up there with, you know, people who I admire. Uh, and then, funnily enough, I was doing one of those sort of Christmassy books, you know, that we do these things, and I did a book called The World Cup of Everything, um, which is a good book, actually. It's still available in all, uh, all good bookshops. Um, but actually, as I was doing that, it turned into quite a, a beast. It was a sort of about... 60, 70,000 words. And I was working, I was sort of doing a thousand words a day and working really hard. And I, I sort of thought, I mean, I seem to be able to do a few hours a day, a thousand words a day, uh, and I'm enjoying it. And I've gotten to the habit of it. And I've always wanted to write this crime novel. Uh, and at the same time, I had this idea. And I kind of thought, well, why don't you just. Why don't you just use this discipline you've had from writing this Christmas book uh, and turn that into writing the novel you always wanted to do? So I thought, I'll oh, give it a go. And by the time you're on 20,000 words, there's no turning back. No. Am I right? No, no. And, you know, I wrote it without telling anyone I was writing it because the last thing anyone wants to hear is someone from TV is writing a book. So I thought I'd just do it for um, myself. Uh, and many, many times, as I'm sure, I mean, listen, everyone says it, but it is true. I just thought this is not good enough. You know, I would read someone else's book while I was writing. And I just think, oh, of course, of course, that's much better. Of course, who am I, who am I kidding? So I had to stop reading um, uh, new writers when I was uh, when I was writing it. But I just thought, just get your head down and do it. You know, knock out the 90,000 words and show it to someone. And if, if it's no good, at least you wrote a novel, you know, which yeah. is nice. And, you know, and um, so to me, it was having just got into the discipline of doing that writing. I thought, well, let's kind of let's let's see if we can ramp this up and I had the idea so I, I, I thought well why not go for it and I'm very glad I did well it, it is I think it is that thing of the of the discipline of it because I remember being hugely daunted I'd written all sorts of stuff you know half hour sitcom bits of this bits of that but you'd pick up on some of these novels and some of them are like house bricks and you yeah. go how much work is that and then I, I went on holiday with the family you know back at the end of the uh, the end of the last century, which oh, is our thing to say. It's the end um, of the last millennium, mate. Sc- yeah, scribbling in a notebook, you know, outside this this villa every night, having yeah. a beer, and, and then by the end of the, the holiday going, I've got about 30,000 words. That's mm. about a third of a novel. Oh, I know, right? And it suddenly seems achievable. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Listen, I'm a numbers guy, and breaking that down into numbers is super helpful. And, you know, 
And the, the other key thing is thinking, well, yes, I've sort of got enough words now. But then you think, oh, yeah, but it's nowhere near as good as the books I read. And then you think, yeah, but I'm not reading the first draft yeah. of any of these books. And that's a really, really important thing to think. Because whenever you're writing, of course there's some awful bits in it. And there's bits you skipped over. And there's bits that you haven't quite worked through yet. And there's bits that are not going to make sense to anyone else. But no one will ever see them. You know, mm. anyone, the first, your first reader, whether that's an agent or, or, or a friend or whatever, is the one that's going to say, I just loved this character, or I didn't get that this was going to happen, or, oh, my God, I'd love to visit the place that you're talking about. Uh, they're not sort of going, but that bit in Chapter 3, that's awful, and that bit in Chapter 6. But then your next reader, who's a professional, will just say, I liked that character, I liked where you were going, you need to do some structural work on this book. And you do it, and you go, oh, so it's like a book now. <laughs> yeah. you know? And you go, of course that's obvious. Well, let, let's, let's, let's talk specifically then about the Thursday Murder Club, which is the title of, of the book. Mm. I know it's not, out, it's not out until September. September the um, 3rd. September the 3rd. Uh, but I'm one of the lucky ones uh, who've read it already, and it is fantastic. I'm not, as our friends in the United States are fond of saying, blowing smoke up your ass, which is not an expression I've ever understood. No. You, as someone who knows a lot of trivia, do you know where that comes why from? Why someone would blow smoke up one's ass? Why would, why would anybody want um, to do that? Why would anybody appreciate having it done? Yes, it's a really good question. I can't imagine a situation in which that would be uh, in which that would be acceptable. No, listen, please say, contact us if you know the derivation of that of uh, blowing smoke blowing up smoke someone's up ass. Your ass as a you know, as if that would be a good thing. Right, I'm yeah. not blowing smoke up your ass. Well, yeah. well, good. good. <laughs> Frankly, thank you very much. Let's end this. End the sentence there. Thank you. <laughs> Cheers for that. So, tell us about Elizabeth Joyce, Ibrahim, and Ron. What kind of characters are they? What, what kind of world they inhabit? Well, it's interesting because you know the 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 idea came. So this is. Um, uh, is set in a retirement community. I went to visit one of these retirement communities, one of these beautiful places in, in sort of sort of 30 acres of English countryside. Everyone's got their own flats. It's beautiful. There's swimming pool, restaurants, stuff like this. Everyone's very, you know, independent and out and about. And it was a beautiful place. Uh, and I went in for lunch there, and um, I had no mobile signal. I thought, oh. Uh, and then, you know, the one thing we all know about being a crime writer is the days where there were no mobiles, it was easier to write a crime. Oh. And so it immediately, immediately made me think of crime fiction. And then I looked around me, I thought, well, this would be an amazing place for a murder. This sort of slightly closed community, but very beautiful, full of incredibly interesting people, all of whom had very, very long backstories. So I thought it would be a great place for murder. And then I thought, I tell you what, looking at the people around me, there's all sorts of people there judges and lawyers and you know writers all sorts of things I thought one of this lot would solve it that's for sure and so I had the idea of teaming up this group of uh, people all in their 70s and 80s all of whom had very different lives um, as you say Elizabeth Joyce Ron and Ibrahim and every week they meet up to try and solve unsolved murders that's their thing in the same way there's a knitting club on a Wednesday there's a <laughs> jigsaw puzzles yeah <laughs> exactly on Tuesday on Thursday's unsolved murders uh, but then there is a murder uh, and uh, they are tasked with solving it. I won't say whether they do solve it or not. It would be a weird book if they didn't, but uh, <laughs> I can't say. And, yeah, the, the love thing about it is they're all older, but no one acts old, I don't think, in the book. Um, Joyce used to be a nurse. Elizabeth used to be a spy, which is yeah. very, very useful. It takes a while to dawn on you yeah. that when you read it. You kind of go, what is it with Elizabeth? Oh, oh I see. <laughs> um, Ibrahim was a, a, a psychotherapist, and Ron was a firebrand late 70s trades union leader who, uh, quite how he's managing to afford a place here, uh, is uh, we discover in a later book. Um, but between the four of them, you know, obviously they're unlikely friends, but, uh, you know, they bond, they have very different skills. It's kind of like the A-team, but for, uh, but, but for pensioners. 
and they all had lots of different contacts in the outside yeah. world from, from their previous lives. Exactly, and, so. and, and they've all got different skills, and you know, everyone can read people very well. Joyce is very Joyce goes under the radar all the time. The nurse Elizabeth obviously is like a battering ram; she can get anything done. And Ron is just distrustful of anything and everyone, which is quite a useful skill. And obviously, there's a very long, long tradition in crime fiction of the, of the amateur detective, or the, mm. in this case, the group of amateur detectives. You know, from Miss Marple to Agatha Raisin. Uh, did you always want to go for sort of amateur? You you were never drawn to to writing about coppers or professional detectives. Or... Yeah, I find police procedures quite hard because the, the way I write, I like to try and not do very much research. So I try and write about what I know because I find that quite that's just the way it works for me. I know it's different for lots of other people. And the second you're in a police procedural, um, there's all sorts of things you have to take pay attention to ranks and you know how long forensics take to come back and all that kind of stuff. And I've got a couple of cops in this who are who uh, who are sort of subsumed into the Thursday Murder Club uh, by sheer force of will of the Thursday Murder Club, uh, Chris and Donna, and become firm friends. Um, but th- the Thursday Murder Club have a way of making you step outside uh, the normal rules of conduct. That actually means my police are allowed to get away with a little bit more than you ordinarily would do. You know, the nice thing with older people in this book is they they face much less consequence than other people in what they do. Elizabeth often says, "And what what are you going to do? Yeah, you going to lock us up? You going to lock us up? I mean, what you want to take me to court? Okay, go and take me to court. See how that goes for you." Uh, and that's rather lovely. And that that sort of um, uh, and that makes it fun to write because suddenly. You know, the lovely thing about writing sometimes is if you can step outside the norm, right? If you've got a normal situation, but you're out to react to, to it and deal with it in an abnormal way, which is why, why we really like writing criminals and psychopaths, because they react to, you know, a normal street scene in a very different way. You want to go inside their head, they're going to describe it differently to us. And in this book, I think everyone pretty much can describe normal situations in a, in a, in a slightly different way. I felt very envious reading it because of exactly what you've just said, that that freedom of not having to worry about, you know, well, you know, here comes a detective chief inspector. He, of course, is one rank up from a detective yeah, yeah, inspector, yeah. you know. And if there's one thing I hate, it's those, and you see it a lot on certain crime dramas, where coppers are forever telling each other their job, and they do it yeah. just to keep the reader. Well, you're a scene of crime officer. You must be now about to bag and tag the forensic evidence in it. And it's just like, oh, shut up. But, you know, because the lovely thing is, you know, at the end of the process of writing a book, you do get a copy editor who says to you, oh, just so you know, you said it was Tuesday here. Oh, yeah. And then the next day, actually, you're saying it's Thursday, so it should be Wednesday. And so that even that gets taken care of, really. So I try and not let any of that interrupt my flow too much. I've got a rough yeah. idea of when things are taking place. But you know that someone's got your back if you've got something wrong or if you said something wrong or if the rank is wrong or, you know, tiny little things like a make, you, you mentioned the make of a, micro, of a microwave. And they'll say, you know, that company don't make microwaves or haven't done since 1987, so it would be an old microwave. Yeah. I think, okay, yeah. that's okay. Yeah. They'll tell you, they'll tell you, I mean, you know, for every 10 things they tell you, for eight of them you might go, I, I'm fine with that, that's fine. But twice out of those 10, they'll save your life. Oh, I mean, yeah. it's Amazing. incredible detail. I think if he was watching an episode of Doctor Who in February 19 so-and-so, it wouldn't have been that doctor, it would have been yeah, that yeah, doctor yeah. or... I once had a, a copy editor who went a little bit far and would write whole essays in the... Really? I, I wrote... I mentioned a fox. Just a fox moves through the narrative okay. in a really early book, and I got this huge essay in the margin going, as a farmer's daughter, let me talk to you about the damage that a fox does. And then, <laughs> OK, you're getting some stuff off your chest. Yeah, uh, but no, I loved... You know what? That's the lovely thing. Once, once your book, once your manuscript, anyway, is out there in the world, there's so many people whose job is to make it better for you. And with you. And listen, you've got the final say always. And stuff comes through and you just go, 
is, is that right? I don't know if that's right. And you know that that's your business. But it's it's you know to anyone who's sitting there writing and just thinking, yeah, but it doesn't quite ring true, or it's not quite up to the standard of stuff I read, or it's not polished. Just honestly, don't worry. If you send it to someone, they read it. They'll see the spirit of the thing. They'll yeah. they'll see if you can write. And if you can write, then suddenly you get put into a process whereby people will look after you and you won't be able you won't be allowed to make any mistakes and the only mistakes left in there will be ones that you've chosen to leave in there which that, is that lovely. thing about having the final say though was that quite a difficult thing to get used to as as someone who's most of the time worked in a, in a collaborative industry in a kind of where loads of people are feeding in notes and thoughts and whatever that thing of well it's up to you it's your book that's yeah. quite tricky isn't it it's it, you know what i've genuinely had trouble with that i was talking to a very good friend of mine lucy preble who's a playwright and i said because in tv I w it has to be collaborative and you're collaborative all the time and you make decisions like that and i kept saying to her but they've just said to me well what do you want what do you want to do with it and i'm like well what should we what should we and they go well and she said well no that's that's your job now said so that's why you know that's that that uh for want of a better term that's your art and the decision you make is the art that you're creating so that's that's all that's all it is and I thought that was, um, you know, I thought that's interesting. It's scary, though. And when the first lot of notes came through, I thought, right, I know that there are going to be notes I disagree with, and I know that I'm going to be wrong. Because, my, you know, I see it in TV all the time, people bring you stuff, and you can tell them till the cows come home about your experience, but they'll go, no, I'm going to do it this way, and they get it wrong. And I thought, well, I know that's going to happen. They gave loads of notes, and I took almost all of them on board. There was one big note. That I thought I don't know about this. I mean, I really don't think this is right. You know, I don't know that they were doing it for the right reason. And then at the same time, we were doing, we did an auction for the TV and movie rights. Uh, and in that auction, almost every single person we went to say, uh, went to talk to, said, "Oh, we love the bit. We love this bit. This bit where this happens, which is the bit they told me to take out." Oh, right. And so I thought, oh, phew. <laughs> I have a reason. Someone has told me it's okay. I don't have to take that executive decision to ignore the note. Someone has told me it's okay to ignore the note. But ignoring notes is very, very difficult for me. Yeah, it's a very tricky thing. Yeah. We will be talking lots more uh, to Richard about crime writing after the break. But before we get to our intermission, it's time to see what our roving reporter, our man with the spyglass, Paul Hirons, has been up to. Paul, what have you been up to, you scamp? <laughs> Yes, thank you, Mark. Now, as you'll hear a little bit later on, Richard talks about the film rights to the Thursday Murder Club being snapped up, and that got me thinking about my own favourite book-to-film adaptations. So I've compiled my own top ten. Are you ready, pop pickers? At number ten, it's Jackie Brown. I could have picked another Elmore Leonard adaptation for this countdown. That would have been Out of Sight with George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez, but I plumped for Jackie Brown because it was so low-key for a Quentin Tarantino film, probably because he didn't write it, and starred the likes of returning 1970s star Pam Greer in the title role, alongside Robert Forster, Bridget Fonda, Michael Keaton and an almost unrecognisable Robert De Niro. At number nine, the talented Mr Ripley, an all-star cast including Matt Damon, Gwyneth Paltrow, Jude Law, Kate Blanchett and Philip Seymour Hoffman brought Patricia Highsmith's lauded 1955 novel to the big screen, almost 45 years after it appeared in print. Introducing the scam artist, arch manipulator and cold-blooded murderer Tom Ripley to a new generation, it proved to be a huge hit. Look out for a new Tom Ripley TV series later this year with Sherlock's Andrew Scott in the lead role. 
At number eight, The Silence of the Lambs. You couldn't have a list of the best crime book to film adaptations without Thomas Harris's The Silence of the Lambs, Clarice Starling, and of course, everyone's favourite psychopathic, father-bean-eating serial killer, Hannibal Lecter. At number seven, The Postman Always Rings Twice. I could have easily put both the 1946 version with Lana Turner and John Garfield and the 1981 version of this James M. Kane adaptation into this top ten, but controversially, slightly controversially, I'm going with the modern version because the sexual tension, the stench of danger and the sense of doom surrounding Jack Nicholson and Jessica Lange, as well as a screenplay by David Mamet was well. Hi, carumba. At number six, L.A. Confidential. They always said that James Elroy's books were unfilmable, such was the density of plot and the sheer number of characters. But Curtis Hansen did the impossible here, not only producing a masterpiece, but also picking up several Oscars in the process. It starred Guy Pearce as the goody-two-shoes anti-corruption cop in a 1940s LA police force rife with, well, he gets it, corruption. Add in Hollywood glamour, CD showbiz journalism and an exploration of the dark, beating heart of the city and LA Confidential was one of the very best films of the 1990s. At number five, In the Heat of the Night, based on John Ball's 1965 novel of the same name, In the Heat of the Night was groundbreaking because it told the story of an African-American detective coming face-to-face with terrifying racism in Mississippi while investigating the murder of a businessman. The fact that this was actually happening in real-life America in the mid-1960s made this extraordinary film even more powerful. Now, talking of power, Sidney Poitier's performance was one for the ages. At number four, Double Indemnity. Our first foray into film noir in this top ten, and what a way to do it. Insurance scams, femme fatales, dialogue so sharp you could cut your hand on it, it must be Double Indemnity. Adapted from a James M. Kane novel by none other than Raymond Chandler, and directed by the great Billy Wilder, the pedigree off-camera was just off the charts. And in front of the camera, Fred McMurray... Barbara Stanwyck and Edward G. Robinson gave sensational performances. At number three, The Godfather. I know a lot of people who would put Francis Ford Coppola's Mafia masterpiece at the top of their list. In fact, many of them would probably put Godfather 2 at the top. But in my eyes, you've got to have the opening instalment of this trilogy first, if only because of the impact that it had. And of course, because Marlon Brando and Al Pacino were in the same film, together at the same time. A great, iconic film. At number two, The Maltese Falcon. Back into film noir land we go again, and has there ever been a more iconic, pure crime character than Sam Spade? And has an actor ever embodied a role as brilliantly and as snugly as Humphrey Bogart? Based on the novel by Dashiell Hammett, it was the paradigm-forming, genre-creating tale of a down-on-his-luck detective with a smart mouth who is thrust into a case where nothing is as it seems. Add in Sidney Greenstreet and the great Peter Law as a chuckling bad guy and henchman respectively, and the Maltese Falcon is one of the very best. 
And at number one, it's Vertigo. Again, purely a personal preference, but Alfred Hitchcock's 1958 masterpiece, adapted from Boileau Nossajac's novel D'Etre Les Mortes, just floored me when I first watched it when I was a student at university, and it continues to floor me every time I watch it. James Stewart is just perfect as the vulnerable detective brought out of retirement to investigate the strange comings and goings of a mysterious woman. Add in lashings of psychosexual obsession, typical Hitchcock that, Vertigo is a vivid, lucid dream played out in mid-century San Francisco. So that was my top 10, but what about yours? Let us know what you think and what your favourites are on Twitter using the hashtag AStabInTheDark. And with that, it's back to you and Richard in the studio. Thanks, Paul. We are back with TV presenter, comedian, director, producer and now crime writer Richard Osman. Um, so, Richard, let's talk about crime writing, the craft of crime writing. We have been doing a bit, but it seems to me that you've always been interested in the format of things. Yeah. You know, you're, you're well known for coming up with new formats for TV. So when it came to approaching a crime novel, did you, did you kind of deconstruct it, take it apart like a, like a clock, put it, find out how it worked? Or was, it, was it something much more instinctive? I, I think it was instinctive, actually. I think I've read so much of it over the years that, you know, a lot of it does come instinctively. Um, but, you know, it's, I like to write with a format. And, you know, crime fiction does have a format, you know, which is, look, something happens and we're going to try and solve it. And listen, with that, within that format, you can do anything. You know, you might not solve it or, you know, get solved. You know, there's a million things you can do. But essentially, you set a puzzle and at the end you solve that puzzle. Or there's a very, very, very good reason why you don't solve that puzzle, which is rather nice. And, you know, the thing I've always loved in crime fiction is that thing of, uh, or certainly since I've written it, I'm far more up on the way that crime writers bury their clues in the text and the very clever ways they get around it. Because you've said to me, listen, your, your solution has got to be in plain sight. You can't in the last five pages just go, oh, sorry, did I not say he's got a brother? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, oh, yeah, he's got a brother. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and he's just got out of an institution. Yeah, so he called him. Uh, you know, your, 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 the solution has to be in plain sight throughout. You can't cheat the reader. You can't cheat the reader because by the end you want them to go, oh, I didn't see that coming, and then go, oh, I should have seen it yeah. coming, because it's there and it's there. And if you set yourself that task, creatively, I find that very freeing rather than uh, rather than constricting, because you can start thinking of a million different ways that you can do it. And when you start, you know, if you're sitting, whatever the latest crime mystery you're reading, get to the end, see who did it, and then just go back and just see the sort of five moments where just a throwaway bit of dialogue or something actually was someone saying, oh, just so you know, this is how it was done or this is how I'm going to do it, or this is how I'm going to get away with it. But you never notice because it's hidden away. And I think sometimes it's interesting because you write with with a lot of humour, which is rather good. Uh, And sometimes if you write with humour, it's very easy to hide clues because you can hide clues in an exchange. Because always you're thinking when you're reading, why is this paragraph in the book? Why is this sentence in the book? Why does he just mention that post box? you know, all the way through. Whereas sometimes with a joke, you're not thinking, why is that in the book? You're just thinking, oh, it's sort of a joke, so that's in the book. Uh, and that's quite a nice way to hide it. But that idea of, look, it's all there. It's all there. It's just under a sheaf of papers. But if you just move those sheaf of papers, you, you have the solution to this book. I absolutely love that as a kind of, as a puzzle. Hiding, hiding clues, but also 
putting in things that you know the reader will think are clues, oh, but that even aren't, better. which is ah, a joy, isn't it? But it's really, lo- it's, I mean, it's really <laughs> lovely. And the, one of the things that really cheered me up when I was writing it, because honestly, I'm, I'm in awe of so many, you know, I'm in awe of you and Val, just all, so many people who are Chris Brookmeyer, who are so brilliant at it. And when you realise that, you know, you've done all the plotting and it's all there, when you realise also, oh, hold on, I could go back into an earlier scene and just say this, and it would make it sound like that was... So you can reverse... Sometimes you can reverse engineer things yeah. that makes you seem even cleverer. Uh, but that's such fun because that's playing a game with the reader that you know they're also playing. Yeah. You know, they want you to play that game. So if I want to say that person X is a suspect, then well, I can make person X a suspect by saying this. But even if you're a great crime reader, I can... So I can look like I'm pretending to hide the clue that that person's a suspect. So if you read it, you go, classic clue hide. Absolutely <laughs> hidden the clue there. And you go, well, I didn't. Well, it is a classic clue hide, but it's a classic clue hide that's also a red herring. And you can start getting into those levels of things, which but I find fascinating. That's why I think all the, all the best writers are voracious readers. I mean, I, mm. it always amazes me when I talk to people who go, yeah, I'm writing, a, I'm writing a book. And you go, oh, fine, who do you read? And they go, I don't read. And you go, what? Because Because... I, I write with an invisible reader kind of looking over my mm. shoulder. I write as if I'm reading it, if, if that yeah, makes any yeah, sense. Of course. And so you'll write a sentence. You'll put something like, you know, you might just casually mention that somebody has a twin brother or whatever it yeah, might yeah, be. Yeah. Now, that may have no relation to anything that happens in the rest of the book, but you yeah. know that the reader will go, I'm, uh, I'm putting twin. that away, firing yeah. that away. That's going to come in handy. Yeah, he's got a twin. No, it's lovely that. And the second, you know, as soon as you start spot, as soon as you notice those things, um, they're all over the place and you can be very playful with them. And, you know, if it, if it then also is fitting into your narrative. That's the real beauty of it. If Because sometimes, i found, if you're laying a red herring, um, sometimes it will take you in a different direction. You go, oh, hold on, it's actually rather a nice scene that I could do here about that red herring, and suddenly that red herring can become a whole plot and become this enormous red herring. Uh, and, you know, so all of these things, every time you're doing this thing where you're trying to play a trick or you're trying to hide a thing, it's opening up your creative bounds you know suddenly you, you every time you slightly go out of yourself to, to to lay a clue you're opening yourself up to a whole other world and i just honestly i that bit of it the 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 the, the mischief of it i found uh, i found wonderful well you've already mentioned humor and there's a lot of i mean it's laugh out loud funny uh, Thursday Murder Club, um, and it wasn't supposed to be. Well, no, no, well, I, well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, presumably, as someone with your background and all the stuff you've done in terms of comedy, it was always going to be a funny. Well, book, I suppose right? that. Yeah, I'm not saying it wasn't supposed to be, and I'm shocked that people are finding it funny because I, I recognise <laughs> that it, it, it. What what I didn't want to do is put any jokes in it, and I don't think there's yeah. any jokes in there. No, it's funny. I think hopefully because our four main characters have a very interesting attitude to life, and the way they take on things uh, is fascinating a lot of it is uh, i do diary entries from joyce who's a ex-nurse but she's i mean the sharpest one in the whole mm. book really but it's, it's sort of hidden behind this oh what me oh what joyce oh it's i don't me. think so yeah. uh and so it's wonderful when she bests people elizabeth has this wonderful imperious i used to be a spy i can do whatever i like thing ron because he's a firebrand is wonderful you know he's always getting mouthy uh and ibrahim who's the um psychotherapist uh is very very you know loves making lists loves explaining to you why certain things are happening loves loves numbers and all those things and as soon as you've got those four people in the middle of a real situation and really bad stuff happens in the book but their attitude towards it it's sort of you can't help but make it funny so no one's telling a joke at any point but i think and i hope everyone's attitude towards each other 
it's funny. And I, even when I read it now, I make myself laugh occasionally with things I forgot I wrote. So you think, oh, that's... Uh, that's got to be a good sign. That's encouraging. Yeah, I was reading something the other day when I was looking at the American edits coming through, and I just read the end of this scene. And I was really just laughing so much. And I thought, well, that's nice. Well, in terms of... So we talked about the character quite a lot. In terms of the plotting, how much did you do in advance? Are you a plotter, a planner, or are mm. you kind of seat of the pants? I had, a, um, I had, I had a, a central theme, of the, a central idea of the book. Um, when I started. So I knew that a certain thing was going to happen and I knew what, therefore what the end of the book was going to be. So I had that in mind throughout. Um, and then, funnily enough, was, and I sort of started working towards it. So I had my characters. I knew roughly what the first inciting incident was going to be uh, and I knew roughly where we were headed and I kind of wrote the end quite quite early. And then... You need a spectacular B plot in all of these things, which doesn't, you know, overwhelm your A plot, but mm. gives you a bit of texture and it helps you with your red herrings. Uh, and I was, I was literally just writing a sort of, just a scene, just to get into someone's character, really. And he's talking to someone else, and then that someone else, I thought, oh, that's a great character. And then that person came in, and that gave me an idea for a B plot. And suddenly, I had my entire plot, and it didn't take forever so that was it essentially I knew exactly what was going to happen so I wrote the last 30 pages I had that down uh, and I had the first 30 and then lots of stuff changed in the middle uh, and you know I would sit down I wouldn't know exactly I knew I was wanted to do a scene where x or y happened or I had to achieve x and y but in the middle of it someone would say something that made me think oh well that could be quite fun that's a slightly different direction we can take knowing where I had to end up eventually so knowing I couldn't be too circuitous but knowing that I was going from A to B, but I could kind of take this little path in between. So I think a little bit of both. I knew, and with the new one I'm doing now, I know roughly where it ends up, and I know why it begins. Uh, and at the moment, I'm having the fun of, um, goodness me, I didn't know that was going to happen, <laughs> which I hate it when writers say, unless you, sometimes your characters take you by surprise. Oh, but the, no, stop but it. I have to, though, because, <laughs> because sometimes you sit there writing and one of the characters will do something, you just go, come off it, really? Yeah, but it's the way those writers, the writers you talk about phrase that, they'll make yes. it like, and I was just, and the, and the, <laughs> I heard the voice and I channeled it, you know, and you're, kind of, you're doing the typing. Yeah, yeah, no, you're, I agree with that. You're putting the stuff in their heads. It's but not, that's the beauty of writing... Um, a series, and I know lots of people do standalones, and you know, you'll know with Thorne that you know him so well that he can take you by surprise because he he is thinking at the same speed you're thinking. Yeah. Usually, so if someone says something to Thorne, you'll get his response before you get your response, even though it's you. Yeah. You know, and so sometimes you think that, or sometimes he'll say something. You think, oh, I didn't expect. I didn't think you would say that, Thorne, i.e., you. Yeah. But even so, you think, oh, but I wonder why you're thinking. Yeah. Now, you know, that's the beauty of it right that's the beauty of characters well it, it, when it works when it works it's How the beauty you, of it so i'm on book two right and i'm thinking that i like my really like my characters in uh book one i like what they did i feel like they may reveal a lot about themselves now in book two all the characters from the first book who survive are back and i'm already thinking it's already nice thinking oh they've got other things to say they do still have stuff that they want to say uh, when you're up to book 17 of the Thorn books, he's, he's still got stuff to surprise well, you? because I, ha I had no dossier on him. There never was a yeah. kind of book of Thorn, Bible of Thorn. Yeah. You know, this is his extended family and where he went to school and all that stuff. So the reader is, knows book on book as much about the character right. as I do. And it strikes me that that's what you've got really in spades going for you with the Thursday Murder Club, is that these characters have such long lives, yes. such, <laughs> long, such a lot of past, that, you know, too. stuff can arrive from all 
all over the place. Yeah, I think that's right. And they're surrounded by people with long paths. I mean, I, listen, I mean, husbands and wives can come in, kids can come in, grandkids can come in. I mean, you can sort of, I mean, even in the first book, there's stuff from, you know, years and years and years that kind of happens and all, all comes to a conclusion. Um, I'm glad it's interesting you say that about Thorne because I felt the same with my main characters is don't give them a no. backstory. Don't say that thing. But, I, I, you know, and occasionally if I'll say something and I think oh, I'll have to remember, I'll have to remember she's been married three times. You know, but the fact she has been married three times may well come in useful. But that is that that is the uh, the flip side of the coin. If you choose to go down that route, if yeah. I'm not going to reveal, it's like peeling away a different layer of the onion yeah, yeah. with each book. Is that you'll then go, oh my god, what's his mother's name? Yeah, I'm, I, I literally <laughs> had to say to my wife, what? Because I've just written a prequel, so yeah. going back to a time when when my character's mother was 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 alive, then going, what's her name? All readers will go, why is Eyes blue in book six and oh, brown dude. in book twelve. And I, but, I, I, you know. I, I presume it's not the done thing to tweet and say, "Could anyone remind me?" I, I have seen that done. Yeah, I have yeah. absolutely I seen see, that I done. I see why you would do that. <laughs> but I think I think the dividends outweigh the, the the problems of just letting the characters, you know, just putting it on the page rather than having it all in files and folders. And yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah. Exactly. So it sounds like very obviously we are going to see a lot more of. Uh, the characters in the Thursday Murder so. Club. So just just remind people listening, when can they get their hands on a copy of Thursday Murder Club? Uh, it's out on the 3rd of September uh, in the UK, and I think about a week later um, everywhere else. Uh, audiobook, Kindle, hardback. Are you doing your own audiobook? Uh, no, I'm not doing my own audiobook. <laughs> I know that you do, but that's because you're a performer. You know, so it would be crazy if you didn't do your own you're, audio. You're book. not not a performer. Uh, yes, but I am also not 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 a performer. The so, accents, it's the uh, accents. Well, just just all of it. You know what? It's not for me. Uh, and so I wanted to have a female voice as well doing Thursday Murder Club because because okay. Joyce, who's, who's who's the nurse there, yeah. who, who feels to me closest to the the voice of the of the of the whole book. You've already um, talked about the, the the TV interest, and I'm imagining it really won't be too too long before we see these these characters on screen. And as I, I mean, I. I was casting it as I was reading it. Mm. It's so perfect for television. It is so <laughs> yeah. perfect. It's very television. castable, isn't it? You know, going, there's Judy Dench. There's Maggie Smith. Please, for God's sake, there's Kenneth Cranham. Oh, Nobody else can play Ken one Cranham but Kenneth Cranham. Great, he would right? just be perfect. Yeah. But that is uh, moving along, those discussions. Um, yeah, so we sold, the, we sold the, um, the movie rights. So, you know, lots of people want to make it for Netflix, which I know is very fashionable these days. My thinking is always, whatever feels like the right thing to do now, was essentially decisions people made eighteen months ago. Because if you're going to, if you're Harlan Coben selling The Stranger to Netflix, mm. you did that eighteen months ago, two years ago. Uh, so I'm thinking, what's the best thing to do for eighteen months' time? And so I sold the movie rights to it to to Amblin, which is Spielberg's company, um, which to me feels when everyone else is going Netflix, I think pivot elsewhere because that's how I've always my career has always gone. You've got to think what's what's next essentially. Um You've so sold this to Spielberg's company and it's not out yet. There are I just need to point out that there are hundreds of writers listening to this going, I'm gonna kill him. Next time well, he show, next time he shows up at a Harrogate there will be that murder I you talked say, about. I will say this to them. <laughs> Read it and if you think it's no good then you can kill me. Fine. But if you like it do you have to go, oh, okay, that's fair enough. I shouldn't have said that now I've said people can kill me. No. <laughs> well you have kind of bought it on yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, just before we let you go Richard I'm going to spring this on you because we always ask our guests for some recommendations. A recommendation of something you've read lately yeah. that you'd like to recommend and something you've seen on TV that you would like to recommend. Okay, well um the thing that I listen, I listen to a lot of audiobooks. Not my eyesight is not all that it might be, and so audiobooks are very useful for me. Uh, and when I was writing the first one, um, you know, I said to you, it's quite hard when you're reading new fiction. When you think, what well, one or two things can happen? You can read something and just go, 
like I read one of your books and you just think, oh, why, why am I bothering? Do you know, because it's so crafted and you just think, and it can get you down. Or you can read something and just go, this doesn't seem great. Uh, and then you start to go, <laughs> That's oh, a much better feeling, oh, isn't it? <laughs> maybe, I, but I don't know, because I think sometimes then you sit down at your computer and you think, oh, I can just write any old nonsense. Yeah. So I loved, you know, reading. So what I did was I listened to all of the um, Patricia Highsmith Ripley okay. novels. Because that's someone who is no longer alive. So I can't feel jealous of her. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone who's not writing specifically in the genre of crime fiction, but is writing about transgression and is writing about crime and is hiding bodies and is murdering people and you know all that kind of stuff, uh, and also just happens to be a genius. And I don't, but without a style that you can ape particularly, because we all know the thing if you read someone whose style is very apeable and suddenly you're writing like yeah. that person. So I would say to anyone, if you're not writing a book or if you are writing a book, the uh, the Ripley novels by Patricia Highsmith are just, I mean, I'd read the first, I'd read um, Ripley's Game, uh, but I re-listened to that and then I went through the whole lot just following Ripley's... Uh, I think rather pretentiously I've heard people call it the Ripley ad. Oh, I have Ripley heard that. Ad. I have heard really? that. The Ripley ad. The Ripley ad. So, so that that's a fantastic re- uh, recommendation. Uh, I, thought, to... I, th- I thought they were absolutely wonderful. And what about something you've seen recently that you would urge listeners to tune into? Um, well, I think that, uh, and we can't really still talk about Line of Duty, other than people still haven't watched it. Oh, it's all available. A, it's all available there. And there's a new one coming up. Yeah. And my take would be, you don't need to watch season one. That's a controversial thing to say. Okay. But you have to watch from season two onwards. You can't start on season three or season four or something like that. So if you start on season two of Line of Duty, and you'll probably get them all done by the time the next season is out. And I think that's a work of um, of absolute genius. When we were talking about TV rights um, for the for Thursday Murder Club, everybody had so you know everyone said oh it's interesting we could simplify this bit by doing this because maybe and apart from jeb mercurio who's the only person who said i think it needs to be more complicated and he thought great i mean that's why he's a genius because he can it's not that he makes things too complicated but he can spin so many plates that that's why his work is absolutely incredible you know he's got so much stuff going on from so many different angles and you never get lost and if you do get lost you think i know i'm supposed to be lost here and he's going to bring me back uh and so if you haven't watched um line of duty i just think it's one of the great works of british television over the last 30 years well there you go there are your recommendations um so a huge thank you uh, to richard osmond for joining us on the latest episode of a stab in the dark you can watch all the best crime drama on alibi which is available on sky virgin media bt and talk talk if you've enjoyed this podcast then please remember to review rate and subscribe it makes a huge difference to us and to the future of the podcast if you do that and it takes but a moment you are not just a person of great taste and perspicacity but a truly lovely human being. If you don't, well, you need to remember that after 20 years writing crime novels, I not only know the best way to kill and get away with it, but crucially, how to dispose of a body. Don't make me put all that research to use. A special thanks to our producers, Paul Hirons and Joel Porter, and once again to Richard Osman. My name's Mark Billingham, and thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.